This week on the podcast, a nonprofit news feed for the week of March 29th. And here today is Nick Azaleh. How's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Doing okay. We're missing Carisha. She's uh, she's on a dessert vacation, so we're going to do our best, I suppose. Absolutely. Much deserved. But George, I'm ready to des- dive in if you are. Let's go for it. Give me uh, what we wrote down at a, at a glance. All right, so our at-a-glance top story for this week is that restrictive voting legislation in Georgia is indicating a larger concerning trend. Now, last week in Georgia, uh, Governor Brian Kemp signed into law legislation passed by the state legislature that effectively makes it harder to vote. There's more restrictions on voting in the state um, that are pretty significant. The Voting rights advocates and even President Biden uh, compared it to Jim Crow in the 21st century. So here we have voter suppression laws starting in Georgia, but the Brennan Center for Justice, uh, which tracks these things, has found that restrictive voter laws have been proposed uh, in many, many states across the country, totaling over 250 such pieces of proposed legislation. So this is really concerning because with such slim majorities in the Senate, Democrats could be essentially legislated out of power via these voting laws, which is a scary prospect and puts uh, you know national federal legislation like the American Rescue Plan at, you know, in kind of limbo. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I guess my fear is less about the, you know, one party versus the other. I care about voting rights and disaffected voters in America. And it's clear when these laws are put into place, they're designed after a certain pool of voters, which may go left or right. In the recent history, yes, they seem to have been given, uh, giving Democrats the advantage. But I love seeing nonprofits and I think a lot with the mindset of truly agnostic in the sense that, like, it is wrong to withhold the votes of Americans who pay taxes, who participate, who fight in our armed services, who are part of this country legally and are here to suddenly take that right away is where you see nonprofits stepping up. And I trust, this is why I like this so much, I trust nonprofits a lot more than when I hear maybe one party or the other claiming uh, that this is uh, the right thing to do because of voter integrity or voter um suppression. Uh, And so I really like seeing the nonprofit voices here step up in it. Yeah, that's a great take. And especially in Georgia, in which, uh, you know, community organizing is such a a big part of kind of the social structure there, um, that it is those those nonprofit, these small, relatively new groups that are essentially community organizers working together and to kind of uplift the voices and political power uh, of, you know, communities in Georgia. So really exciting. And that's the flip side, right? So we have this law, but then on the, the other side, the really exciting kind of mobilization uh, being led by nonprofits to, uh, you know, work to change the status quo. All right. What else do we have? Uh, another... Our, our other topic for today is about how community organizations are responding to the devastating surge in violence and hate crimes targeting Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Of course, within the past couple of weeks, we've had uh, that devastating shooting 
Um, but the response from these community organizations has been really strong. And we just wanted to highlight some of the projects and organizations doing amazing work to combat this anti-Asian violence. Um, among them are coalition projects like uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Stop AAPI Hate, um, that are working hard to respond to incidents of violence, hate, discrimination, and other forms of harassment against the AAPI community. And just this past weekend, there were dozens of rallies across the nation calling for an end to this violence. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, this particular community has seen an increase in violence, often being cast as scapegoats during this this pandemic, um, but encouraging to see uh, organizations and, and coalitions um, really step up here and, and take the lead on combating this. Yeah, this is the sad outcome of the villainization of a of a group of people by race. Um, you know, when you when you unleash the amount of hatred per word that the previous administration did uh, targeted at certain individuals, this is the net outcome. And I think you know it is interesting and encouraging to see when we find that there's a social ill and there's something that uh, the community needs to respond to. The average person saying like, how do I help? Where do I go? You see nonprofits stepping up. That's where the sort of list from, you know, time, you know, time magazine saying like, here are the organizations working on this, right? We are frustrated. Some of us are afraid. We want to support our, uh, you know, our friends, our, our coworkers, and and people that are being, uh, you know, victimized in, in this. And we look to nonprofits to offer us a way to turn dollars into impact. So, you know, write a check, join a rally safely at a distance, <laughs> unless you've been vaccinated, in which case wear two masks. Uh, but I think I like seeing these nonprofits uh, come into light and get some funding because this is not going away um, in a weekend. Um, this is going to be a, a long battle uh, because of the amount of uh, entrenched now hatred and stigmatization of uh, Asian Americans. Well put. I agree. All right. We too agree. Should we move to some summary? Let's let us move to the summary. So our first story in the summary is about donor advised funds or DAFs. And looking at the numbers, this comes from nonprofit quarterly and they're reporting that, once again, contributions to DAFs has increased dramatically. Um, by the end of 2019, there were over $141 billion um, in DAFs, including a nearly $40 billion increase in the number of contributions um, in that year. And I think the, the bigger picture here, George, is that this is a trend that isn't going away. It's here to stay. It's increasing, and this has lots of ramifications for how, you know, high-volume planned giving and, uh, you know, all sorts of philanthropic giving is is occurring and has huge ramifications for the sector. Yeah, and this is reporting coming from Nonprofit Quarterly, and, you know, this is going to continue to be on something that you pay attention to with $140 billion that is set aside. Keep in mind, it's not like waiting in a lockbox, um, certainly earmarked, quote, for, for nonprofits. And there are reforms in place to say, hey, maybe we should be increasing the amount people should be donating. 
DAFs traditionally actually end up uh, giving a, a range uh, and in terms of percent of giving, uh, you know, range from 24% to 41% in some cases, but you saw some movements last year of half the DAF uh, saying, hey, you should be giving away half your DAF in, in terms of uh, the amount given it. And they give it a higher rate than uh, traditional philanthropies do. But it's important to note to follow the money. You know, what's happening here is somebody comes into a significant windfall of, of cash, you know, be it from an exit from a company or what have you, and they put it into a tax vehicle so that they can get the tax savings in that year to write off against it. Now, it sits in an account that is invested in the market, right? It's tracking the market. So this number is going to go up with the overall economy. So they're like, oh, that's great. There's going to be more money. However, not if it lives at some as a, as a new sort of vestige of like, oh, it just sits in the market and doesn't do the actual work of turning dollars into impact. It's like invested in, you know, let's say a Vanguard fund, which just means it tracks the market, which means guess what? There are oil and gas stocks in there. There are companies that are not necessarily making the world a better place. It's actually working against the potential nonprofit it gets donated to. It it drives me a little batty on that because of the, you know, the locked up potential. So I'm hoping for some more reforms and, and tightening on here. Uh, and this, <laughs> we'll be seeing this in the news again. I'll say that. For sure. That's such great context, George. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, it's, um, it's one guy's opinion, um, but I say it <laughs> a lot. So hopefully people will write back to us and, uh, and give me the other side. And we've had experts on DAFs come on and, and talk about the upsides and managed funds and intelligent giving that is certainly out there, but got my eye on it. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, We really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Our next story is uh, kind of in a similar theme, but it's about uh, corporations becoming financiers of racial equity. So this is a report from the Associated Press, and it says that uh, corporations actually outpaced donations from foundations and individual philanthropists um, on the issue of racial equity. Now, this is to me, I was I was fairly surprised at this, to be honest. Um, to me, cautiously optimistic, is this corporations and big business putting the money where their mouth is with regards to racial equity? Um, these numbers came since George Floyd's killing in May. Uh, George, what what does this tell us about how um, you know corporate social responsibility and and corporate giving and how this is impacting the the nonprofit space and where where do we go from here you see csr follow macro trends um around issues that become of public interest remember a company gives because it increases the value of its shareholders like i don't mean to be crass about this but the formation of a company and the purpose of it is to increase the value of its shareholders and value. Now, you can say motives are uh, obviously part of the message here, but the net effect is that when 
society cares the amount that it does about issues of Black Lives Matter and continues to care and make it an issue, guess what? The companies that want to get in their wallets and get sort of the good public press about how they're spending their money and also their employees want to see them uh, doing the work that matters most, guess what? You know, that means more money is going to flow there. So, you know, I look at it as um, an um, amazing response in 2020. I would bet that this, you know, would maybe follow the the new social issues that will be rising in the coming decade of saying like, okay, where does CSR go next? Is it the environment? Is it stop Asian hate? Where, you know, where does it go? And it tends to follow the sentiment of the consumer because the company's job is to increase the value to its shareholder. And by doing that, they're beginning to see this as, yeah, we have to, you know, get aligned with the, the social causes uh, of the moment. But, you know, uh, I don't see anyone saying, all right, now we're going to take 1% in perpetuity and put it toward the NAACP. I see annual corporate giving being spent that way. But I, I like seeing the story. I'm glad we're highlighting it. Absolutely. Our next one is a little bit of a downer. This one comes from KHON2, a uh, local news station out of Honolulu. And it appears that a man has embezzled $500,000 from uh, CARES Act funds acting on behalf of a fraudulent nonprofit. I don't know what the the bigger takeaway here is, but uh, maybe going back to that theme of, you know, not all nonprofits are created equal and the sector has, is not immune to the problems, you know, greater societal ills and people who want to take advantage. Um, So we always need to be vigilant. I am always, uh, reticent to say like, because obviously we have editorial control here. So I can be like, oh, the news is always like wants to make a big deal out of it. Uh, This is a good reminder that you have to have your financial house in order that uh, when one goes, so too we all a little bit with regard to nonprofit reputation of like, oh, I've been hearing about this embezzlement scam here or there. Uh, but paying attention to the way that you show up on, you know, those ratings, how you're transparent in your 990 and those that, that financial work is very real. Um, because these types of things, you know, will ultimately ruin an organization or at least um, set it back uh, quite considerably. So, you know, the the transparency in nonprofit sector is much higher than others because they have open books and they're audited and they need to be audited. And this is what happens. So, and it's a it's a good reminder of uh, when you're doing your risk assessment of making sure that you've got the proper financial checks and double checks uh, in place uh, for your financial officers and your team. Absolutely. This reminds me of this is a throwback, but Coney 2012, that viral documentary oh, fundraiser that went viral for all the wrong reasons, and it was exactly that, you know, uh, kind of poor financial management and suddenly becomes a, a global story and, you know, could damage the reputation of, in this case, international like, development and human rights organizations. So I think that's, that's a really salient point there. Yeah, it's a, it's a small group of nonprofits that have to deal with a sort of like a rising tide moment where it's like sudden fame all of a sudden where maybe your, you know, sea level suite is not ready for it or your financial mechanisms aren't ready for it. I mean, we just talked about a group of uh, stop Asian hate related organizations that are probably seeing higher donations than ever before. And it's kind of this game of like, 
everyone loves you on the rise up, but then you get a sort of layer of skeptics that come in and saying like, how was this money used? Where did it go? I can't help but feel like this issue is still here. Uh, The scrutiny comes and the higher you go, the higher you can fall. So, you know, it's hard to say, hey, how are we minding the shop? How are we making sure we're doing the right things in the right way when you're dealing with tremendous opportunity of donations coming in the door, CNN calling you up for quotes, and you feel like, you know, you're at the top of the world. But keep in mind, the higher you climb without the right infrastructure, uh, you could be setting yourself up uh, for something that could set, like you, you just mentioned, set back your your section of the industry back. Um, and that that's something that you don't want to do. Oh, I had one. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if you've heard of uh, these tree sitters, but it's a movement started in the 1990s where essentially people just basically tree up. They go up and they hang out in a tree to stop, you know, things like pipelines and destructions of forests and uh, protected lands that maybe get like rezoned. And like, it's like a last ditch effort of kind of like, you know, tantamount to like handcuffing yourself to something. So they go up in these tree stands and they just live. Uh, so this one tree setter was removed from a mountain valley uh, protest going on in um, uh, the Appalachians against pipelines, was reporting it, I think it's in West Virginia and Virginia. And this is now the longest standing uh, protest, tree sitting, longest continuing blockade of a natural gas pipeline east of the Mississippi River. But get this, they've been at it since September 5th, 2018. They wrote out COVID in the trees. And so it's like one sitter after another climbing up, protecting trees, climbing up, protecting trees. And it's just, you know, grinding this to a halt. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it harkens to the, uh, the type of nonviolent, uh, civil disobedience, environmentalist civil disobedience. That's, um, it's pretty impressive. You know, I'm, I'm impressed. Color me impressed. (laughs) I I smell a movie somewhere in here. It would be uh, (laughs) rather boring and then very, 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 very exciting. They have to take somebody out of a tree, but they're very careful, obviously, taking people out of the tree. They have um, a lot of precautions they have to follow, which obviously only adds to the time. And I love this idea of like somebody from oil and gas pipeline with a bulldozer trying to negotiate (laughs) day after day. It's someone's job to go negotiate with a tree sitter (laughs) since 2018. It makes me um, makes me smile. Um, Does. those folks doing uh, doing work that they believe in to, to stop an oil gas pipeline okay I feel like that could be our feel good story I mean that feels good but um, was there anything else you wanted to highlight Nick alright I think that, that qualifies as our feel good story I felt so good about that one uh, so until next week thanks for checking in remember subscribe nonprofitnewsfeed.com it's free we send you emails and it's curated great news from a great sector Thanks, Nick. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks, as always, to Greg Thomas, music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 